Hello, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 214, and we're going to be interviewing Nikki. How are you doing today, Nikki? I'm great. Thank you, Jim. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to do this as usual. So let's dive in and get started. First question I ask everybody is, tell me about your childhood and growing up. Okay. Um, so I um, am a sibling of two, and I um, uh, grew up with a, um, a mom who was alcoholic. Um, and my father, uh, passed away when I was really young. Uh, so, um, how young I was four, I was four. Uh, my dad was killed and, um, and, you know, my mom kind of really, uh, was a really good example of, you know, do whatever you have to do to take care of your kids. Um, so may I, may I ask what happened to your dad? Yeah, so uh, my father was murdered. Um, uh, he, he was really sick and um, he left our home uh, thinking he was gonna die. And long story short, he um, got a girlfriend and she had an estranged boyfriend and he followed them home one night and out of jealousy broke in, um, shot my father, uh, shot her and then felt bad and scooped her up and took her to the emergency room, dropped her off. And then he drove around the corner and blew his brains out. And so, you know, um, interesting how later on that played such a significant piece of my life because my mom had just told me he died because he was sick. And when I found out later around 12, uh, which corresponded with about the first time I took a drink, I was so angry at God, you know, how could that happen? How could, you know, um, yeah. So really interesting. Um, and here's the thing, you know, my, my sister, uh, she's not an alcoholic and she grew up in the same circumstances, but, um, yeah, yeah. Childhood was chaotic, very chaotic. Well, I can only imagine finding that out 12 years old. You're so young and it's hard to understand, like you said, why someone would do that. We don't, at that young age, we don't realize that there's just some people that they're not well and they do yeah. crazy Well, you stuff. know, I had been told he was sick my whole life. And so I found life insurance uh, papers that said that my dad died from a gunshot wound to the head. Okay. And just couldn't understand, you know. Yeah, that must have been hard. Yeah. So. So you took your first drink around 12? around uh yeah it was actually uh, my mom had gotten married to a man and it was at her wedding and um I I drank uh, drank some champagne I believe and um blacked out first time I drank you know really? um yeah how much did you drink do you remember I have no recollection um but I do remember really interesting all these years later we have pictures of you know my mom drunk and me drunk um so, you know, um, yeah, yeah. And you Your know, mom was, was okay with it. You know, I'm not really sure that my mom was aware, you know, okay. I think there were a lot of things that happened that, you know, my mom was so engulfed in her own alcoholism and her own life, um, that a lot of things, you know, she just missed. Just, she just missed. So, um, I'm sure that probably my mom came to the United States when she was seven from Germany and they drank, you know, my grand, my grandfather and my grandmother were both uh, functioning alcoholics and, you know, uh, beer and wine were a part of their daily routine. So I don't think it was probably anything really out of the ordinary, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a very young age to start drinking. Mm -hmm. Our brains are so in the process of molding themselves, and, you know, becoming who we're in the process of becoming who we are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I struggled with that too, you know, because I just, um, being bounced around, we moved, I couldn't even count how many times we moved, you know, when I was a child. So always like struggling to make friends and fit in. And, um, you know, when I drank, I didn't have to fit in because I was okay by myself. And so it just started this lifelong pattern of searching to be okay. And if I wasn't okay, I knew that if I drank, I was. So at 12 years old, did you, okay, so you had your first drink at your mom's wedding. When was the next time you drank after that? You know, probably wasn't immediately. It was, um, you know, I was in seventh grade and, you know, um, 
you know, marijuana was being introduced to it. And so, you know, friends were, you know, smoking pot and um, really interesting though, I remember planning. So I remember like, you know, um, premeditating the next time I would go out and drink and premeditating um, when I would be able to go and hang out with my friends and get drunk. Um, you know, so it wasn't like an everyday occurrence, but it was on my mind every so day. your friends were also drinking at 12? Yes. So everybody got started really young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the culture. I grew up in Miami Beach and, um, you know, but this, my mom had moved us to Florida because I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally. And, um, you know, this um, culture of just this fast life partying and um, hanging out and, um, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy young. Mm -hmm. I was lucky. Well, even I started pretty young. I was 17 or 18 because even that's, I think anything under like 25, mm -hmm. they say that's when your prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, your rationalization and reasoning really becomes mature around 25. Yeah. Well, so, you know, later in life, I was a chemical dependency counselor for five years and realizing, learning how the brain actually develops. And when you're introducing addictive substances to your brain at that young of an age, how all of a sudden, you know, your pleasure centers rewire themselves. So, you know, I, I don't believe that I knew how to self-soothe or how to give myself, you know, to feel good because I had just learned that the only way to do it was with substances. Yeah, it takes away, like you said, from us learning how to deal with problems ourselves yeah. without the aid. Oh, yeah. Something. I had no problem solving skills. And yeah. So. So it really made you more social and fit. You felt like you fit in more. Or you said you were also more okay by yourself, you said? Yeah. So, you know, I described myself as this chameleon. Like I didn't fit anywhere, but I blended in. Okay. You know, I, um, I never felt like I fit and, um, you know, I, I struggled early on, uh, with my sexuality and I couldn't, you know, I came from this, my mom was very religious, belonged to this very zealous church. Um, we couldn't go to the movies. We couldn't do all this stuff. And, so are um, you, are you gay? And that's one of the things yes. you also about. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so I learned this message that I was not okay. And, um, you know, and I'm trying to figure that out as well. Um, and I just, um, you know, I, I think I just uh, compartmentalized that and just said, you know, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. And, you know, a lot of things of the, that I just drank, you know, like in order to deal with the, I never processed any of that. I mean, I don't think I fully processed that until the first time I was in the absence without any drugs and alcohol. And that wasn't until I was 36. Well, I mean, I've thought about before if I was gay, um, how would I go about telling people? I would be terrified because mm -hmm. I would just, it's, it's, a, it's a natural fear of not knowing how someone's going to react. Yeah, yeah. Especially you if know, and I lived my I lived my life as a heterosexual woman and tried to fit into these relationships, was married twice and, um, you know, just all the while checking the boxes for everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I have a cousin that's gay, and I'm so happy because the first thing that went through my mind is, oh, my God, my aunt and uncle are so religious. But their minds opened up, and they're fine. They never had a problem with it. They said, that's our daughter, and that's it is. And she still goes to church and everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that's up to her how she handles that. I mean, I right. find that a little weird. Um, there are, I just know, couldn't go somewhere where I wasn't accepted. I would feel like, you know, the hell with you guys. I'm going to go home, and I'll find yeah. people that accept me for who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Was I think, go ahead. No, you go first. Oh, you know, I think hopefully that some of the um, churches and organizations are starting to open up a little bit to, you know, um, accepting and loving. And, um, you know, I myself do not go to church. Um, you know, I feel like I attended enough when I was a kid for I'm good. I'm good. I punched my card. Um, but, um, you know, I, I just, you know, I would just hope for anyone that they go where they feel loved, you know, that's, that's the, um, best, that's the best way to put it. That's a great mm -hmm. way of putting it. Yeah. All right. So, um, 
moving on. So you were drinking from 12. So when, when did it get, um, so from the beginning, was it a heavy drinking or was it just having a couple? It, it was, it was really sporadic. And so, you know, um, it, it started to get more frequent. And at 14, my mom sent me, uh, to my first boarding school. I was, uh, we were living in Miami beach and my mom, um, you know, I'd had kind of like an emotional meltdown with my sister and threw something at her. And I think my mom had had enough of my, um, I was emotionally volatile. I mean, I just, you know, um, angry and had outbursts and, um, I don't think my mom really knew what to do with me. And, um, so she put me on a plane and sent me to Cleveland, Ohio in the middle of the winter. Um, and I went to an all girls boarding school and, um, you know, really interesting, like, you know, I went and I found the girls that drank just like I did, you know, um, and I came back home, um, after I wanted to go back and really, I didn't have good grades. My mom's like, I'm not going to spend all this money to send you to this school. If, you know, um, because of course there, I had like horseback riding lessons and, you know, I mean, this is like all these, um, you know, rich girls, which, I didn't fit into that equation, but, um, and so, yeah, I came home and, um, and very shortly after we moved back to Ohio. So my mom and my, um, second, her second husband who legally adopted us, um, they got a divorce and then we moved to Ohio permanently. So, um, that's really, I think like right around 15, 16, when my drinking really escalated, my mom's drinking was probably some of the heaviest in those years. And, um, and I just, um, you know, I was, I, it started off drinking every weekend, you know, then, um, I added, um, LSD to the picture, you know, smoking, um, weed all the time. Um, and then, you know, by the time when I was 16, so by the time I graduated high school, I was almost a daily drinker, you know, I was drinking before school. Um, if not every day, most days, um, you know, for sure, uh, drinking every weekend. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a pretty, pretty regular occurrence. You know, I had one friend and she drank like I did you know, um, and we just, you know, the two of us were just, you know, peas, peas in a pod. And that's what we did. We just drank. I mean, I almost missed graduation because I was hung over, you know, like just, um, yeah. So, and, and crazy, crazy. I think back and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, how did I even graduate high school drinking every day? Yeah, no, yeah. no. A lot of us look back like that. So your mom was also an alcoholic. Yes, yes. How was and, her drinking while you were growing up? Do you remember anything? Was there any like, you know, things that happened bad because of it? Insane, like is, in, insane drinking. Um, you know, she always had like, not like necessarily office jobs. She did a lot of sales. So she had flexibility in her schedule. You know, my sister and I talk about like how we never brought friends home because we could never, you never knew what you were going to come home to at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um you know, um, very unpredictable. Um, and, um, yeah, drinking a lot. And my, you know, my mom was a blackout drinker as well. So, you know, drink, pass out, um, which unfortunately I manipulated, right. I took her car. I went out all night, you know, I snuck out, I did whatever I did, whatever I wanted because my mom really wasn't a hand, you know, my mom wasn't, you know, on top of things to really pay attention to what I was doing. So you pretty much had free reign. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, and after, um, after high school, I did go to college and, um, I was in college for an awfully long time. I always joke that I majored in alcoholism and I minored in going to school. You know, um, I did a lot of geographical cures at that time. Cause you know, my mom had gotten divorced, um, from my stepdad. And so I moved back and forth, you know, I would pack my car and I would get on I-95 and I would drive south and move to Florida. And then I would get, you know, my dad would get sick of my stuff down there. Um, and so I would move back to Ohio and I was back and forth. Um, not until I was probably 20 years old did I finally um, settle into a place and I moved to, my sister, you know, my sister was the the graduate in four years, not four years in one day from college. She was the 
you know, um, achiever. She behaved, she never got in trouble. She never did anything. And so she was in school in Bowling Green, Ohio. And I said, well, I'm going to come to college with you, you know? So, um, I moved to Bowling Green. My parents got us an apartment together and, um, and, you know, and I was almost 21. And so then the game really got interesting. You know, it just, I mean, the progression of my disease was crazy. Can you believe alcoholism would be a disease? Oh, it's absolutely a disease. Yeah. If it wasn't a disease, that it wouldn't be in the DSM-5. And there wouldn't be insurance companies that would pay for us to go to treatment. That's a great point. I'm like in the middle. I think it's a disease, but every now and then I'll hear an argument for it not being a disease. But because the only thing, the only thing I could say is I also believe it has to do with your environment for some reason. Um, because I do these interviews, like I said before, you're interviewing mm. 214. Almost, I tell everybody, almost 90% of us have childhood issues. Well, trauma. So there are risk factors, right? Yes, for exactly. any disease, I guess that's a great way to put it, risk factors. Any disease process has a risk factor. People just don't end up diabetes unless they're type one juvenile diabetic, right? So there's these risk factors that we have and it's environment, it's diet, it's, you know, all, all those things. And so one of the contributing risk factors for addiction is trauma, yes. you know, and so, um, you know, trauma, and that can be early in life, later in life, but trauma is definitely one of those things. And, you know, if we don't learn healthy ways to cope, same as with somebody, I'm also a nurse. So if we don't learn healthy ways to cope with those things and learn the proper ways to take care of ourselves and heal our brains and our body, if we get introduced to this substance that teaches us how to feel better, of course, it's going to be something, you know, and it goes from the beginning, just the same as somebody doesn't start off overweight and become a diabetic overnight. It's this process, right? Our bodies change and it goes from the want and the fun to the need and the necessity. Yeah. Unfortunately, I believe addiction, the, the symptoms are behaviors, which people have a hard time wrapping their head around. Well, the one thing I can also say that contributes to my thinking that it is a disease is we share the same symptoms. A lot of us have legal, financial, all we do the same dumb stuff. We feel right. the same way as far as the reason we think we need our drugs or alcohol yeah. or whatever, maybe our addictive behaviors like gambling yeah. and sex. Yeah. Well, and then you look at withdrawal, you know, if it yes. wasn't, a, you know, if it was, there are some substances that are actually physically addicting. And so how can you, how can you deny the fact that, you know, that's not some sort of disease process when somebody's physically ill or could die? I mean, you know, when you look at benzo withdrawal and alcohol withdrawal, people die from that. That's what I was mainly withdrawing from when I went to rehab. And I, I thought I was fine. I was like, oh, you guys are on heroin and crack. It must be terrible because you could die. And they're like, uh-uh. They said, we feel like we're dying, but you're the only yeah. one at risk here. Yeah. I remember the nurse the first night or the first few nights in detox, the nurse would come in every three hours to make sure I was okay. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I didn't, and I didn't realize it was that so dangerous. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I went to Bowling Green. I started, picked a major. Finally, I went, decided to go to school for nursing and I got a job in a bar and, um, you know, um, over this course of time, you know, my sister started to realize my drinking. Um, she didn't want to be roommates with me anymore. Um, I had several roommates that, um, I would come to from a blackout and they had left a note that said, I moved out. Like, I, we just can't do this with you anymore. Um, and, um, you know, I was going to school for nursing and, um, you know, this is about the time that I got introduced to cocaine for the first time. And, um, funny, I remember like people had offered it to me. I'm like, no, I don't want to try that because I know that I'll be addicted. I know that I will love it, you know, and who says that, but somebody who, you know, who has a substance abuse problem. Um, and so I did, you know, once I started using cocaine, then really the financial strain started coming, you know, cause up until this time I hadn't been in trouble legally. Um, I had had for my father passing away when I was little, I had had a little cushy, um, life insurance policy. My mom had stacked away for us, you know, and I was blowing through that. Um, and when I was 25, 20, beginning of my, I was 26 and I got called into the Dean of nursing's office. And she said, you know, Nikki, uh, you're getting ready to fail. And we suggest that you take a leave of absence from school. 
um, in a nurse, in a BSN program, if you fail out of one bachelor's degree program, it's not like you can just reapply to another bachelor's degree program. Like your bachelor's dreams in nursing are done. So she said, we recommend that you take a leave of absence. And um, very shortly after um, I had I had somebody that I dated um, or hung out with or drank with. And um, I think that was like the beginning of the semester. So maybe it was like January and very shortly after I found out I was pregnant. Oh boy. When they, gave, when they told you to take a leave of absence, were they aware of your partying? No, I don't think they really knew what was going on. I'm sure they suspected, um, but um, yeah, no, they, they didn't say anything about it. Um, but, you know, um, and, and this is the thing I had, you know, earlier in, in my college, I had had a pregnancy and then because of my drinking, um, I, I terminated it, you know, it was not something, uh, that was in the cards and I was, you know, I was like this, this not something. Um, and so fast forward now I'm 26 and I, you know, I had done some like, taken some surveys online that you might have a drinking problem if, and one of them was like, uh, one of the questions was like, you know, if you drink alone and I was like, I work in a bar, I never drink alone. So I just check that off. You know, you might be, you might have a drinking problem if you drink first thing in the morning. And I would be like, I never drink in the morning. You know, why I never drink in the morning because I was up till five in the morning. So like, I didn't get up until five in the evening. So of course I never drank first thing in the morning, but it was morning to me, you know, all these ways that I just really like downplayed my drinking. Um, and then, you know, when I found out I was pregnant, I was like, okay, you know, this, this is the way, and I had been, you know, I had that, like that inkling that maybe that I needed to stop, you know? Um, and so I just, I said, okay, well, you know, this is, this is a good thing. I'm going to move home with my mom and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get sober and, um, and I did get physically sober, but I didn't do anything otherwise. And so, you know, um, I fantasized about drinking every day while I was pregnant. I yeah, mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. A lot of women, I find that they quit when they get pregnant. There's something that clicks, I think, biologically that it makes it maybe a little easier because they know it's not just them anymore. It was God. It was not me. I'm going to tell you what, because I wanted to drink every day. I wanted to drink every day. And I don't, I don't know why I didn't. You know, maybe it was because I live with my mom. Maybe it was because I, I don't know, maybe it's because I was in school for a nurse and I knew what I was going to do. And, um, but. Well, give yourself you know, credit. Your credit is due where it's due. And obviously yeah. if you quit, credit yeah. is due. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so, not easy for an alcoholic or an addict to quit. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had my daughter and um, I, it was a really tough birth and um, I had a C-section and then I got a prescription for pain pills. Oh boy. And you know, the bear was, a, was, got kicked. And, um, I, uh, she was about a month old and, um, I remember, so I breastfed her. I was, I was at home. I was living with my mom. I wasn't going to school at this time. You know, her, um, her biological father didn't have anything to do with her. I'd never seen him during my pregnancy. He was a major alcoholic as well. Um, and so, um, she was about a month old and I decided to stop. I was like, oh, there's a bar that I used to drink at, you know? And so I stopped in, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. I was just going to have one. And I think I got home at about three in the morning. And my daughter had been home with my mom, um, crying because she was hungry because, you know, I breastfed her. I didn't have a milk pumped. I didn't do any of that. And then when I got home, my breast milk was poisoned. I couldn't even feed her, <coughs> you know? And uh, the irony of it is that instead of saying like, holy shit, like, you know, that you have a problem. I just thought, well, I went too early. I didn't have enough milk pumped. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And next time we're going to plan. And that's what happened. You know, from there, I was going out as much as I could. And it wasn't all the time, you know, it was pretty, um, I would guess like moderate, you know what I mean? Like I just kind of, I didn't drink a lot all the time, but, um, you know, trying to fit into that box, my mom, um, she kind of looked at me like damaged goods. So that I was, um, you know, I was a single mom 
and, um, and that I had this baby and that I was never going to find anybody who was going to want me. So she introduced me to this guy that she worked with, um, who I had no real interest in, but in the alcoholic self-centered, self-seeking and selfishness, I saw this hardworking man who loved my daughter. I think first time I met him, she was, my daughter was three months old and, um, you know, I, he was going to buy me a house. He was going to, you know, get me a car. He was going to take care of me. He was going to do all those things. And so of course I married him, you know, didn't love him. Um, and as a matter of fact, I believe right before the wedding, he said to my mom, I know Nikki prefers girls, but I'm willing to live with that. So I think the two of us were just, just as sick. He just wanted somebody to love. I just want somebody to take care of me. And then my drinking really progressed because now I had a built-in babysitter. I started going back to school for my nursing degree. I was, you know, drinking all the time. I was not coming home at night. And uh, we had been married 13 months. And the last straw was I had stayed out all night. And I came home in the morning and he was like, you know, you have to go somewhere and I don't care where you go, but I'm going to help you get there because I can't do this anymore. And uh, he did. He helped me move down the street. He helped me get an apartment. Um, and of course, you know, now I could just drink the way that I wanted to, um, except the fact that I was a single mom to a three-year-old. And it was, um, you know, how children's services never got invo involved in my life. I have no idea. You know, I have no idea. Um, I did graduate from nursing school. And at this time I got a job as a nurse. And so I was working as a nurse. And, um, of course, right. As I celebrated my new job, I you know, I hadn't done any cocaine since I had been in college. And of course to celebrate, I said, well, I should, I should get an eight ball. And so, um, I, you know, once I, once of course, then I poked that beehive, you know, now I'm making good money as a nurse and I, um, you know, started using cocaine again on a regular basis. And I don't care what kind of good money you're making. If you're using cocaine all the time, you're not, you don't have a whole lot of money. No. <laughs> um, the more you make, the more you spend. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know, that for people who are old enough to remember that commercial or it's just like that slow going boat that's just going down the toilet. And it's like, I work so I can make money so I can do cocaine so I can go to work. You know, I do cocaine so I can go to work so I can make money. You know, it's just like this vicious, vicious cycle. So yeah, I used to love cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, a year into my nursing career, I had a surgery. And um, also important is that um, at the bar, um, I met this guy and he drank like I did. And um, six weeks later, we went to Kentucky and we got married. And we proceeded for the next, um, let's see, 92, I'm trying to think of 2002, 2002 to two, for the next six years, pretty much, I don't know how we didn't kill each other with our drinking and drugging, but, um, you know, we just, it's all it was, you know, we had nothing else in common except getting high and drinking. So, um, you know, he was a lot of times unemployed, very manipulative on my part. I was making all this money and I was like, I pay the bills and you don't do anything. And, you know, um, feeling like I had this upper hand in this relationship. Um, so I was really mean and abusive. Um, and, um, had a surgery for the pain pills. And then of course they stopped giving you the prescription after you have the surgery. And then, so that's when my buying pills started and my opiate addiction really kicked off. <clears throat> I was just like a Roomba vacuum cleaner. I'm telling you, like at work, if somebody would have told me a prostate pill was gonna get me high, I was the addict that would have like crushed it up. I would have snorted it, I would have smoked it, I'd done whatever. And if it didn't happen the first time, I had to try it again the second time, just in case, you know, like I just, was anything that I could do to be high. I was high at work. I would go to work drinking. I would go to work hungover. Um, by God's grace, I never killed anybody. I worked in an intensive care unit. Yes, definitely by the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, anonymous phone call was made to my job. Um, and that said that you have a nurse that's smoking crack and stealing morphine. Because at this point, somebody had introduced me, introduced me to freebasing it, which I didn't know anything. Like, I'm 
I lived in suburbia, so I didn't know anything about that. You know, they're like, oh, cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, basically I was smoking crack and I was doing a horrible job at it. You know, I would smoke up an eight ball and in the night I just, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, it was like, um, but, um, and so I got called into human resources. I had been there five years and um, I was escorted off the property by security, you know, and most people would say, maybe Nikki, you have a drinking problem. You have a drug problem. And I didn't, I went, got my car and went to the bar. You know, so, um, you know, as a nurse, when anything like that happens, you have to get the nursing board involved. And so then I met with the nursing board. I got put on administrative leave from work and um, met with the nursing board several months later. And, you know, we went over the charges that they had had. He, he only asked me to admit to four instances where I'd taken medication because see, by this time, I was taking meds from the hospital every day, all day, um, you know, taking IV meds, um, anything I could get. So you were shooting up and everything. Well, I wasn't at this point, I wasn't shooting up. So I was skin popping what they call like giving myself IV meds um, like insulin. So I was, you know, I, I held myself to this esteem that I'm like, I'm not a junkie, right? I didn't put it in my vein. I didn't, um, so I would research all the medications that I could steal from the Pixis that I could do subcutaneously. So basically under my skin, because I didn't want to be that person. I wasn't that bad, you know, to use a needle in my vein. Later on going through like an intensive program, they were like, look, anytime you draw up drugs and you put in a needle and you stick it in your body, like you're using drugs intravenously, like you're, you, you know what I mean? Like, I just thought I was so much better. You know, I didn't think I was smoking crack because I was just putting it on foil with baking soda and I was freebasing it. Like, I made my, I made myself seem like I was this glamorous, you know, like I'm not sticking a needle in me. I'm not. Isn't it amazing the way we think when we're in the middle of addiction? I mean, insane, insane. And, um, you know, so I got put in a, a program for nursing and then I got several months later, I was indicted by the grand jury in my county for um, two counts of illegal processing of drug documents and one count of drug theft. So they only picked up three of the four charges that I admitted to. I went to court, they gave me this uh, drug court program. And so, I, you know, I'm 36 maybe 35 at the time. I'd never been in trouble. I don't know anything about probation. I don't know anything about the nursing board's probation. You know, they're going to drug test me. I have to pee in the cup and all that stuff. I had no idea that they could test for alcohol in your urine, you know? So I'm failing at the nursing board because they're catching me with alcohol because see, I could understand the drugs were a problem, but I couldn't understand that alcohol was. So what I would do is I would drink and I would set a timer and I would stop drinking by 11 o'clock thinking I would be good by the next day to go to this probation thing and blow in their little thing. And I wouldn't fail any drug tests because I wasn't taking any pills or using any, any drugs. Um, and so, you know, the nursing board was testing my urine for alcohol, which I had no, I didn't even know that was a thing, you know? Um, so I was getting ready, you know, like, the nursing board, I was struggling with that. And I was struggling with probation. I was forging meetings. I was drinking before meetings. Um, I was just really having a hard time. So I made this executive decision that I was going to surrender my nursing license, thinking that if I just went back when I got my life together, I could go back and get it reinstated. What I didn't realize is that when you surrender a nursing license and you're already in one of their programs, in Ohio, they permanently for a lifetime revoke it. That's right. I had worked my whole life to be a nurse. And um, I didn't know that then. However, that was in January. And two months later, I went to drug court and I had a very strict judge. And um, he said, you know, Miss Ripple, I told you that if you didn't complete this program, I was gonna send you to prison. And he said, I terminate your probation and uh, sentence you to 54 months. Good luck. So I'd never spent a night in the county jail and I went to prison for four years and three months. Wow. Yeah. That must have been a wake up call. It was, you know, it wasn't. And this is the crazy thing. 
It was not. I was pissed. I was angry. I was self-entitled. I couldn't believe this had happened to me. I had friends of mine who were nurses. They were getting like chump change probation and they were getting to go to rehab. And I said, I never got any of those things. And I was mistreated. It was, I was the victim, you know? And, um, so then of course, you know, my mom starts to feel bad because, you know, she buys into my shit thinking that, you know, like I was treated misfairly, I was treated unfairly. And so I go to prison and my mom, because of, I think some of her own stuff, and we've talked about this, um, you know, she felt bad, maybe that she had contributed to some of my problems. So what she did is she showered me with gifts. So the whole four years I was there, it was all about, I need because I was in this really lax prison in Ohio. I need my hair done. I need new shoes. I need a food box. I need a clothes box. I need a chicken dinner. I need um, me, 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 me. Come visit me, bring my daughter. Because, you know, this is the thing. Like my daughter went to school when she was nine. I said, I'll pick you up from school. And I never came back. I never came back. And now all of a sudden, you know, I'm asking my mom to bring my daughter. It's an hour and a half drive to the prison every two weeks to come and visit me. And my daughter went home crying after every visit. And I was so selfish. I didn't even care. I was all about me. I want to see my daughter. I don't care that she's upset. I don't care. She's having a hard time, you know? Um, and so in prison, I actually, you know, those people, places and things, well, that, that geography changed. You know, so now I'm incarcerated with people who, um, you know, who had done different things, who had been to different places. And um, my, you know, I, the stakes, I ended up, you know, and um, for the first time in my life, though, I was ever substance free. First time in my life, I ever realized I was a lesbian. So I was like, okay, the drugs and the alcohol, they're what made the men in the relationships in my life tolerable in the absence of drugs and alcohol, I could see that I had no desire to be with a man. So, you know, of course, probably not the, the most opportune time to tell my mom that I was a lesbian and that, by the way, my first girlfriend was this girl who was, you know, an 11 time felon and who was six foot one and black. <laughs> Oh yeah, that would, you know, my mom was a little upset, but, um, anyways, you know, I, I made this girl, Jackie, my higher power, you know, um, and she was a heroin addict, a lifelong heroin addict and had been incarcerated numerous times for theft, you know? And so she got out earlier than I did. And, you know, cause I played AA, I went to the little meetings, you know, I did a little 12 step group, but when I came home, I had no God. I had no sponsor. I had no understanding of the powerlessness of my disease. And I had this girl who was a heroin addict who I made my higher power, you know, and within a month, um, really interesting. I took some over-the-counter diet pills because I gained a lot of weight when I was incarcerated. And I, when I got home, I took some diet pills I bought from like the gas station or something. And the obsession to drink overtook me. Like it was crazy how when you put any substance in your body, that like that um, something lit up, you know? And I was like, Man, I really want to drink, you know? And it wasn't very long afterwards I started drinking and that moderated for a little bit until then I was like, oh, well, I'm gonna take a pain pill. And oh, I'm gonna, you know, somebody offered me um, a Suboxone strip. And I was like, well, it's not an opiate, you know? Um, and I, re you know, remember with Jackie, she's, full-blown in her heroin addiction. And I kept like having this curiosity about it. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm 40 years old now. I get out of prison. I'm 40 years old. And, um, I remember, you know, she first time in my life I ever saw a crack pipe, you know? Um, and I remember her having this and saying like, let me hit that and, or her offering it or something. And I remember saying, you are not going to like the person I'm about to turn into. Clear as day, sitting there on the porch. And I knew it was coming, you know, very shortly after, um, you know, I started using heroin and um, look, that toboggan shoot to hell went real fast. I mean, like within a couple months, 
within four months, five months, we were homeless, you know, um, sleeping in the car. Um, you know, I quit my job. Um, I had gotten down to like 89 pounds. Um, I think the first time I went to detox was maybe like five, six months into, you know, uh, using heroin. By this time, really, I had stopped drinking um, and was, you know, strictly using heroin and um, cocaine, you know, smoking crack every day um, and, um, and introduced to shoplifting. I had never shoplifted. I maybe shoplifted a lips lipstick when I was a kid, but um, at this point I had no means of making money and I had this horrible habit every day. And I remember, you know, that was Jackie's thing, you know, and I'm not faulting anything of her because all the decisions I made were my own. However, when you're with people, you know, you learn different things and you do different things. And um, I remember the first time I shoplifted, you know, I was sick and she said, you know, if you're sick, we don't have any money and you're going to have to get in there and steal something. And that then became almost the secondary addiction too. you know, like the thrill of the chase, the getting, you know, like the narcotics anonymous says, you know, the getting and using and means to get more, you know, it was just, um, I, I couldn't go to bed unless I knew I had heroin in the morning to get out of bed. Um, I couldn't function during the day unless, you know, I had so much, um, to be able to use in and out of detox. You know, I would go to detox and I would spend a week there taking showers, eating snacks. They would tell me that they would have a bed for me, but it would be a little bit. I had to wait. And I would tell them I didn't have time to wait. So I would have the same people pick me up from detox that had dropped me off and I was high before I had got home. You know, um, was this awful vicious circle. So um, in the shoplifting now, I, um, we had gotten arrested. Um, actually, I got, the guy tried to stop me. Um, Jackie said, I got a bad feeling about this. She went to the car. And of course me and my ego was like, Ooh, I can do this. And so, um, I went out the store, loss prevention followed me and a tussle ensued and he tried to detain me. And I, uh, shook away from him and I jumped in a moving car and we got away. And little did I know, um, that I was going to be charged with and indicted for aggravated felony one robbery and aggravated felonious assault with a deadly weapon. Um, and that was in January that happened. And in March, um, I was arrested at another department store and uh, found out that these indictments were coming. And I was, I was indicted, um, you know, on uh, these felony one, two charges. Um, and my mom's like, you know, who did you, and mind you, kept thinking like, okay, I'm gonna turn myself in, I'm gonna turn myself in, I'm gonna go to detox, I'm gonna get sober. And I could just never do it, you know? Um, and my sister pulled some strings for me. She got me a bed at this well-renowned uh, sober house treatment center. It's called the Edna House in Cleveland, Ohio. And um, I got there and um, I only stayed five days. I wasn't willing. I wasn't honest. I'd snuck, you know, some clonopins in and clonidine and thinking I was just going to detox myself. And, you know, by day four hit and I couldn't do it anymore. I left. And um, I finally turned myself in on um, May 28th of 2014. I'd had enough. Like I had that feeling of impending doom. I knew I was going to, you know, I wanted to die every day. At this point, I was suicidal. Um, I wanted to die, but I was too chicken to do it. I just hoped that the drugs would. And one day I woke up and I didn't want to die. And I don't know what changed. And I called my mom who had been like desperately looking for me. Um, and she showed up, she had um, a US marshal around the corner um, just in case I changed my mind. And she took me to the county jail and I turned myself in on these serious warrants. And my sobriety date is May 29th of 2014. Yeah. So basically, it sounds like that was your rock bottom that made you decide you need to change things. Um, you know, at that point, I'm gonna be honest, I, Jim. I wasn't ready that I wasn't ready that day. Um, I um, I know I didn't want to die, but I really didn't want to be sober. So um, 
I got into the county jail and after I crawled out of my cell, like five days later from being sick and finally took a shower, I went to the phone and I called my mom and I said, mom, I need you to give me $25 so I can buy some shampoo while I'm here. And she said, I put $25 on this phone to tell you to go yourself. And um, I'd rather give $10,000 to a bum under a bridge. And I don't know what you're going to do, but you figure better figure it out. If you call me again, I'll block the number. If you write me, I'll throw it in the garbage. And if you write your daughter, I'll throw that in the garbage. Good luck, Nikki. And she hung up. And the despair really started to set in. See, because the first four years, like I didn't want for anything, right? You know, and here I'm thinking, I'm going to go back to jail and I'm going to be okay. And I'm just going to eat some snacks and my family will come visit me. And, you know, I mean, really like I had this mindset of like, I can do time. I wasn't, I wasn't even afraid of going back to prison. You know, um, my girlfriend, Jackie was downstairs. We were co-defendants on this case and she was going to prison too. And, um, and so I'm sitting in the, the people are, had smuggled a bunch of drugs in and everybody was sitting there. And I had just thought like, oh my gosh, I can't live like this. And um, I just witted this half-witted prayer, like, God, just please help me. And the next day, this lady came in who was from Heroin Anonymous. And she said, you know, Nikki, if you would quit using drugs and drinking, you would quit coming to jail. It was like, mind blown. Like I had never really put that together, you know? And, um, she gave me the address to a PO box and she said, you know, if you want help, write this place. And I had one free envelope and I had no family. I had no friends and I had the willingness. I knew I was going back to prison. I'd been sentenced two years and, um, I wanted a pen pal. I'm gonna be honest. I wasn't even like, yeah, I'm going to get sober. I just wanted somebody to write me. And so I wrote the PO box for Heroin Anonymous to their um, H&I committee. And um, I got a letter from a girl named Amanda <clears throat> who was a nurse just like I was, who was a heroin addict alcoholic just like I was, and who had worked the 12, 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and gotten better and she would help me if I wanted to get better. And we worked the steps through the mail. Really? Yeah, worked steps through the mail. She sent me a big book and I would write, you know, she would send me the assignment and I, she sent me envelopes and I would send them back to her. She would go over them and then she would send me my back, send it back and then send me the next assignment. Um, and when it got to, um, you know, the third step prayer, I woke up in the middle of the night and I hit my knees because I didn't want to see God forbid anybody saw me praying in the prison. Um, and, um, you know, I just said, okay, like I, I don't know what you have planned for me. I don't know what this even looks like, but I'm just going to do it because I said to do it. That was how it started. You know, the God that I believed in didn't love me because I was a lesbian and, um, I didn't even know what I was praying to, but I believed that something maybe was there. Um, and right around that time I got transferred to a different institution and my sponsor was able to come visit me. So I wrote out my fourth step. I did the fifth step with um, my counselor who was actually in recovery. Uh, it took us a couple of sessions because I had to schedule meetings with her. Um, for my step six and seven, I wrote my character defects on my hands and took them into a visit with my sponsor to go over them. Um, for steps, uh, my step eight, I uh, made a list of the people that I owed amends to and I stuck it in my shoe <laughs> and I snuck it into a visit. Figured I'd rather go to the hole than die the way that I was living, you know? Um, and I started making amends from prison. Um, and, you know, um, the last amends that I made was to my mom. She needed to see it. So she was, I was probably, I did two years in prison and then I came home. I was probably home for another year before I actually made amends to my mom. She needed to see some living amends. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, started sponsoring women when I was incarcerated, um, doing service work, holding meetings, um, really big difference from the first time I was there. So, so this is the time that you decided to finally get sober, mm -hmm. your life needed to change. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I was coming home, I didn't have anywhere to go. So it was either go to a homeless shelter 
um, or go to a halfway house. And I, you know, I just the week before heard that one of the girls that had gone to the halfway house had OD'd in the bathroom, you know, and I was like, uh, you know, I just really, so I begged the Edna house that had given me the bed, you know, before I went to prison, I begged them to give me a bed and they did. So when I was released, my sponsor picked me up and took me to the Edna house and I did eight months there. How was that? <clears throat> um, it, it was great. So see, I didn't know how to live in America sober. I'm not be a functional part of society. I didn't know how to go to work without drinking or using. Um, I didn't know how to get up and make my bed and how to shower on a regular basis. Like, and I know this seems like crazy, but I had been, you know, I had been surviving for so long. I had really didn't have any idea on how like to function, you know? Um, no, I so, completely understand. I have the same way. Shower, yeah. Not showering, not brushing my teeth, simple yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the Edna house was very, very, very rigorous. I'm not going to say strict, rigorous. So, you know, you lights out by 10. You, you had to be out of your bed in the bed made by seven. You had daily chores you had to do. You had to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting seven days a week. And you had to use a payphone to call to get a ride from a woman who was sober over a year to take you to that AA meeting. You couldn't walk, you couldn't take the bus. So you had to develop these relationships and make your own community. You could only ride with the same woman twice. So for the first 90 days of my life, you do group Monday through Saturday from 8.30 a.m. to 3.45 p.m. You have a little bit of free time, you have dinner, you have your chores, and then you go to a meeting in the evening. You get a five hour visit on the weekends on a Sunday. And if you, you know, it's from 12 to five, if you show up at 501, you don't have a place to live. Like that, that was, it was just, that was the way it is, you know? So what I learned there was I learned to be responsible. I learned to take care of myself and to take care of others. Cause you know, like it was kind of like I am my sister's keeper type deal, you know? Um, started to rebuild those relationships with my family. And, um, and when I, after 90 days, you can start looking for a job <clears throat> and I couldn't find a job. You know, I was like, this is ridiculous. I have a bachelor's degree and I can't find work. And um, <clears throat> I get a job hanging pants in a factory at a tuxedo store. Um, and I was grateful, you know, like my self-entitlement, I needed to be, res you know, basically like to nothing to be able to say like, okay, you know, like you're not all that, you know. You needed to be humbled. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I, I never forget, like I, I didn't have a ride to work. The job was an hour, I took me an hour on the bus and a train to get to this job. And then an hour on the bus and the train home. And then I still had to come home and go to an AA meeting. <laughs> and I remember marching in the office, like who does this? And they're like women who wanna stay sober. What was I gonna say? I was like, okay, I just went out, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I completed the Edna House and I moved into sober living. And believe it or not, I stayed in some form or another of sober living until um, I moved to California and moved in with my now current wife. <laughs> and you've been sober ever since? Oh yeah, May 29th of 2014 been so long time eight yeah. years yeah well Going you know compared, compared to the amount of time I drank and drugged you know I'm like mm, but you know yeah um you know I mean and I count my time when I was incarcerated you know there's a lot of drugs and alcohol in the prison um you know I um chose not to engage in that and um you know when I came home um you know I got my job and then I uh went to school to become a chemical dependency counselor I, um, you know, was a chemical dependency counselor for five years. Um, and I met my wife through um, Cleveland AA. Um, she's 13 years sober. And, um, you know, she was going to school at the Cleveland Clinic and she came, um, came out here to California. And then I followed her out. And uh, a year later, we got married. So, oh, congratulations. That's great. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. And so, you know, now I actually, um, I sponsor four women, um, out here. Um, you know, 
I go to a minimum of two meetings a week. Um, I hit online meetings as well. Um, I do work full-time and back in the medical field. Um, I work as a monitor technician in the ICU, uh, but the gifts of this program, God brought me to California because I have an application pending to get my nursing license back. Oh, and congratulations, by, that's great. By, by March or April, I should be licensed as a nurse. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's amazing the good stuff that happens with sobriety. Yeah, yeah. My mom was just here, you know, for five days. My mom and I get along amazing. My sister and I are best friends. I have a fabulous relationship with my daughter. You know, um, I have a fantastic support. The the meetings that I go to out here, women's meetings, you know, I've just found um, it's my we, you know, it's my, they um, really are the backbone of my life out here. So, yeah. That's great. That's Mm -hmm. great. So it sounds like we're getting towards the end here. Let me ask you one last question. Sure. Do you have any advice for people that are watching and listening? Um, you know, my biggest piece of advice, you know, they always talk about the how, the honesty, the open-mindedness, the willingness. For me, I had to reverse that. I had to be willing. I had to be willing to be honest. I had to be willing to even be open-minded. And sometimes that willingness is just like, you know, it's just like a crack in the door, you know, Um, just almost like step three, right? Like we have to be willing to entertain that there's something else that has a plan for us. We don't know what it is. Just, you know, kind of like you just kind of crack the door. Um, You know, they they say keep coming back. I say stay. Even if you're getting high and you're struggling, even if you're drinking and you can't stay sober, stay. So like, you know, because I feel like the women, they loved me until I was ready. It was, I, I don't know. Um, you know, it's just to be willing, willing to give yourself a chance, you know, willing to do whatever it takes. You know, um, we have this amazing life. We have no idea. Somebody would have told me nine years ago, I'd be getting a nursing license back. I would have told them they were nuts. I'd have probably spit in their face, right? <laughs> that, that I would be married and that I would be employable and that I would have family and that I would have friends and that I would be this um, productive member of society, you know, that I would be asked to speak about a story of recovery because I'm gonna tell you what, nobody asked me anything. I didn't have any friends. Nobody wanted me around, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, to be well, I really, I really appreciate everything you've uh, opened up and shared with us. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, thanks. I'm, How do you feel right now? You feel good? Yeah, yeah. You know, I always say that it's God's story, He just let me live long enough to tell it. That's an amazing way to have an outlook on it. Yeah, <clears throat> there were a lot of days I didn't think I was gonna live. Yes. No, I know. Unfortunately, all about those days. I was talking with someone the other day and saying there's so many times I went to bed and I took so much stuff. I was just like, I hope I wake up because mm-hmm. my biggest fear was my mom finding me dead. Mm-hmm. I wrote many suicide notes thinking I was not going to wake up. Yeah. Only be mad when I did because I had to start all over. Yeah. Yeah. But life is beautiful. It really is. Yeah, it can be. Absolutely. You just got to put in the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you have anything else that you want to add in? Anything Mm -hmm. we didn't touch on or miss? No, I think, you know, I think um, for me, the key points have been um, sponsorship. So, you know, whatever program you go to, you got to get a sponsor and you got to work the steps. Because I really believe that's the only way for me that I was able to make any kind of changes. Um, and it was hard for me to kind of reach out to somebody and be open to somebody, you know, because I was so closed off. But it has been one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. You know, the 12 steps have changed my life. And whatever program, you know, they're all the same, all the same, a little different. But, you know, the steps are there for a reason. I think that's it. 
Well, again, I really want to thank you for doing this today. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking. No, you got it. So sit tight for a few moments. Okay. And for everyone watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on all social media. We're on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Um, you name it, we're probably on it. I also suggest checking out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find plenty of free resources and literature. So I hope you enjoyed today. And until next time.